The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. If you are dealing with serious addiction to opiates, heroin, or something else, you know what a toll it takes on your life and the lives of those you love and who love you. This is A Man in Recovery Radio, from dope to hope. You'll hear from host Tim Ryan about his long journey from a winning life to losing nearly everything he had, including his 20-year-old son, all from addiction. Now, Tim has a purpose, to educate others about the devastating effects of addiction and how if you are one of the millions of people who have lives that have been affected, you can turn things around today. Now, here is Tim Ryan. Good morning, Tim Ryan, Man of Recovery Radio, taking people from dope to hope, helping one addict at a time. Appreciate you tuning in. Got a really good friend of mine uh, as our guest today, Chad Sabora. Uh, Chad's based out of the St. Louis, Missouri area. Chad, how you doing today? I'm good, doing good, Tim. You're doing good. So how the hell, when did I stumble into you? It's been over two and a half years. I walked out of prison three years ago on Friday, on December 16th, and then I started getting things set up, and we probably met through Facebook or whatever probably two and a half years ago, wouldn't you say? I would say so, yeah, if I remember correctly. Right, right when you got started, you, 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 you found me. I found you. I found you. So <laughs> how much clean time do you have now, Chad? I have a little over five and a half years. Well, this congratulations. 2011. So. Wow. So give us a little backstory on you, Chad. What's, how did you get sober? What did you do in your previous life? Share a little bit with us about that. Uh, my previous life, I did a lot of things, but I'll I'll give the fifty cent version. I'm from sh- Chicago, uh, Skokie, and also West Rogers Park. Um, my dad was a recovering addict. He died thirty five years clean. He helped uh, build Gateway Foundation up in Chicago. My mom was a prosecutor. I was an athlete growing up. Then went to school. I went to law school. Um, and right when I graduated law school, right after I took the bar, my dad died of leukemia. I started working as a prosecutor up in Chicago and started, uh, I, I always partied. Um, I was a weekend warrior up until about 25. Uh, that's when I crossed the line. Um, and then after my dad died, I started getting really heavy into benzos and sleeping pills to kind of deal with the grief and dabbling into painkillers because it helped. And then about a year and a half after my dad died, my mom died of lung cancer and I just went on a run. Um, <clears throat> started doctor shopping, getting pills from everywhere I could. Once that got cut off, I had done heroin in my teen years as being a little wild, and I knew where to get it, and it was all downhill from there. So you're a prosecutor down in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, career-wise, you got a great career, but <clears throat> the catalyst of losing your father and then losing your mother, not having whatever coping skills, whatever, and it just opened Pandora's box for you. Pretty much. But I was always, um, 
I was always um, partial to, to painkillers, even when I was a teenager. I always liked them. But I was, I was always able to pick up and put down. Uh, right. But I, I played around too much to the point where it got me. Um, and then I was no longer, you know, suffering from drug dependence or drug, you know, recreational drug use. I, I crossed that line into addiction. And once yep. I crossed that line, from, for me, there was no going back, um, which was a real, uh, my, my weekend warrior days was a real hindrance because uh, all the times I tried to get clean, I always would look back on the fact that at age 17, 18, 20, 22, 24, I was able to just stop and go to school and do the things I wanted to do and then, you know, party again a couple months down the road. But this time there was, there was no stopping. There was no stopping for an hour, five minutes, 30 seconds. I constantly had to have something in my body. Man, and it, uh, so what was ultimately your downfall? What made you, you know, say enough's enough? God, you know, I wish I had, I had a lot of those. You know, everyone says your bottom is when you stop digging. I don't really believe in what quote unquote rock bottom because rock bottom for almost all of us would be death. Um, if there wasn't right. some type of intervening factor. So when people say, Oh, you got to let them hit bottom. Well, you know, you got to let them feel some pain, but you know, bottom for all of us is dying from, from this crap. Um, so I lost a half a million dollar house in the suburbs, law license, cars, fiance. None of that stopped me. Uh, what just, what, what finally stopped me was self-acceptance. Um, I had always been able to justify my use based on my pain, which I thought was special, uh, which now that I work with um, people struggling with addiction, I know that uh, we all feel that way. Like, you know, we, did, we should be able to do this because nobody understands us. No, that's, just, that's not true. That's just uh, that stuff in our head trying to keep us down. Um, so when I had a phone call from my sister one day who said some horrible things to me that I had heard a million times before and never sunk in, but for that day it sunk in. And I realized I, I couldn't justify what I had done anymore. I burned too many bridges, done way too much, and I realized I'm just sick. <clears throat> so that was it. In, one, in, a, in almost a flash, self-acceptance that I'm just an addict, and there's nothing wrong with that, and I need to finally start doing something different. And so what did you, what did seventh you rehab. <laughs> um, stayed probably at this rehab the shortest amount of time I ever stayed at a rehab. I think I was only there for roughly 24 days. I was still dope sick when I came out. Um, but I have been clean ever since. Awesome. 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 Um, so what made you decide to head down towards St. Louis where you're at now? Um, sometimes a geographical shift is beneficial to us. Uh, it's hard to get clean um, when we're constantly looking in the backyard at our demons. Um, so that was part of it. Also, there's a Gateway Foundation here, which my father helped create. So I came down here because it was suggested by uh, my uncles growing up that I go to that facility. So when I completed treatment, I just stayed down here. And, it, and you didn't just stay down there, Chad. Part. You You've made a mark down there. Well, yeah, I kind of had to. <laughs> so, so you've been sober, you know, since 2011. What are some of the things? Tell me a day in the life of Chad Sabora. Now, you've got, you've got your hands like me in so many different facets of addiction, harm reduction, legislation. You got a, a, a little baby at home. You know, tell me about a day in the life of Chad Sabora. Well, we do. We own a not-for-profit now, and it started out as 
a theory, I guess, in my head. I, we wanted to fill all the holes that were never there. I mean, there was always treatment. You know, that was always there. And whatever you want to quote-unquote intervention, which I don't fully believe in most of the methods that are used these days. But, I mean, that was always there. But there's so many other issues uh, surrounding addiction. So we wanted to fill those holes. So um, we do a form of intervention, but it's it's, it's more evidence-based um, as far as a little bit of willingness on the part of somebody going to treatment. And, uh, families call me all the time for interventions, and I kind of explain to them that we don't just cold call somebody. We don't have a jet in our backyard. We can ship them off to, you know, a... Uh, uh, nine, nine, 90-day rehab like they have on the television show, the public perception right. and stuff. is right. Public perception of addiction has been twisted by uh, mass media, which is a shame. Um, almost like, you know, we're an experiment at a zoo for people to watch us. Um, so we got, we got focused on those needs that weren't being, weren't being met. We got focused on the uninsured, the people with no resources. Um, we got focused on harm reduction for Narcan, needle exchange, uh, doing everything we can to keep the struggling addict alive until they're ready for recovery. And then we got heavily focused into legislate, legislative reform, which is what I do most of my days, uh, trying to get logs, logs passed to change drug policy in this country because drug policy in this country was based on a lie. Drug policy in this country was based on the Harrison Narcotics Act of 1915, which made all drugs illegal, which automatically put addiction into the criminal justice system, and it belongs to the public health system. So we have 100 years of bad drug policy to fix uh, that will take probably 100 years to fix if we ever do it. Yeah, that's uh, it, it, it's crazy, Chad, because I kind of... In some regards, we do a lot of the same things. I mean, you're the type of guy that if someone calls you or, or reaches out to your non-for-profit, whether they have no insurance, they have state insurance, they have good insurance, you are going to do everything in your, your power based on that person's resources and willingness to they, get them into some type of place, some type of treatment center, whether it's a three-week, it's a 90-day, whatever, to get them on the right road. Yeah, luckily though, um, you know we have a system. We have if you do this for a little bit, you're going to have a system set up. So our placements, helping people really, you know, we already have it set up. Somebody calls no insurance, boom, you know, we have a, a eight to fourteen day wait list. Somebody calls with Medicaid, probably about six to ten days, and then you know somebody has commercial insurance, that's one to three days. So there's not too much work behind that. I kind of self-run these days, which is which is really nice. But we had to put four years of work in to build these relationships, especially with the Medicaid and state-funded treatment centers, to be able to accomplish what we do. But it's it's set, and it's a beautiful thing to be able to get somebody placed uh, without too much work. So it, it really, it really is because, well, well, for the people, too, that, like in Illinois, coming into next year, you have to have state insurance or they will not take you. That's a law that's been passed. And, and trying to explain to a drug addict that you need to go down to the DHS office and fill out for state insurance, chances of that happening are slim to none. Um, right, so so it's, we, have to, we have to be prepared for that. So to be prepared for that, you, well, we did because we're very close to Illinois. We, we have somebody from Illinois Department of Public Aid that will assist them in signing up for insurance. Um, you know, so we, once we know the problem, um, we just we put the solution in place right away. You need you need to sign up for Medicaid because Illinois has a Medicaid expansion. You will definitely get Medicaid. Then all you got to do is call this person and they'll walk you through the whole process. 
you know, we should put a little bit of work on the part of the person struggling, but I remember what it was like barely having the strength to get out of bed or to keep the, the demons out of my head. That we have to give them a little, we have to make this transition as easy as possible so they get help. Absolutely. So, you know, a lot of things I get, though, you know, we put a number of people into treatment. And I, I think this weekend alone, we, we put seven people in. And, of course, six of them have no insurance or state insurance. And, and we're just getting them into detox. But that's given us two or three more days to try and find a bed for them. And, and there's some great, great places around here. But then you'll hear about the person that'll get out and relapse, and, and unfortunately, sometimes they die, and they want to blame the treatment center. They, everyone's always looking to blame someone, and, and what I say is, it is what it is. You know, well, we most- have to, you know, again, <clears throat> another problem with the solution in place. You know, we have to, you know, I, and I'll catch some heat for this sometime, but I, I teach responsible um <clears throat> you know, quote-unquote responsible using practices to kids before they go to treatment, while they're in treatment. If they're struggling, if they follow some simple rules, they'll survive. <clears throat> you know, and people will say, oh, you're enabling. Uh, you're you're going to make them want to get high. I'm like, no, I'm going to make sure they don't die. And, and, and <laughs> you know, people- I, I, it does, you know, no one ever forced a needle on my arm or, or made me do anything. Triggers do happen. Sometimes some of the stuff we have to teach can be a trigger, but I would prefer a person to know how to survive their addiction, um, you know, because that's the most important thing. So I, we, we I, have to give them simple rules. There's a reason I survived 17 years of active addiction, because somebody in New York City in 1996 taught me that world. Uh, these kids don't have that these days. They're, they're learning how to use from watching YouTube videos. You know, they don't have the, they didn't grow up in the culture that you and I grew up in, where you almost had a sponsor in the drug world. Yes, you know, that, yes. that showed you that world and showed you how not to die. Um, you know, granted, the influx in opiate use is the major reason that people are passing away from overdoses, but also, you know, the, the age of starting to IV drug use. Uh, the culture surrounding addiction these days has changed, which is also encouraging more people to use less responsibly. Yeah, that, that's, in, I mean, it's, uh, I'm sick and tired of burying people, but it's like some... This mother had had put a post in some other group about, you know, about the treatment center I represent, their for-profit and this and that. And, you know, do people tell the oncologist that's trying to save them from terminal cancer that, oh, yeah, you're going to make money at this? You know, this this whole shit about people saying, oh, you're for-profit, you're not. Most of the treatment centers are for-profit and they have a division that's a non-for-profit, but it takes millions of dollars to run a treatment center. I was just sharing with you prior to the show starting about uh, some detoxes out in uh, Colorado in Arapahoe County that are going to be closing down because they don't, they're losing two and a half million dollars a year. It costs money to put people into treatment and people think this should all be free and it comes from a money tree. I don't know what the answer is, but what we're doing is we have to, we have to blame part of that on the, the treatment industry, which is, yes, a billion-dollar industry, but they're not forced to use any evidence-based practices. You know, I know, I know we, we disagree a little bit on medication-assisted treatment, but there's certain things that, you know, have been shown um, to um, create more successful outcomes, and we don't have um, any strict uh, rules guiding treatment centers. They can kind of do whatever they want, golf therapy, equine therapy, and granted, it's nice if you have money and insurance to be able to go ride a horse, 
but treatment centers need more evidence-based modality. We don't have those. You know, we have a we have a revolving door for treatment, and we have to blame the industry for that a little bit. For a small percentage of those treatment centers that encourage a revolving door philosophy because that's how they make their money. Yeah, so, You know, you're absolutely right. About two and a half years ago, it was a week after my son died, I was at a support group for parents that had a kid in addiction run by a local treatment center. And I won't mention the name, but I can remember a mother telling the facilitator, you know, my daughter relapsed again. And the lady's like, oh, well, send her back. Relapse is part of recovery. She said, my daughter's been to your treatment center eight times. Well, just bring her back again. No, you know, and and I've had people that relapse. If someone comes to our center more than twice, we're transferring them out. We're not going to keep them. They might need a smaller uh, continuum of care whatever the variable is, but you don't keep taking people back and back. I could see relapse once, come back. If it doesn't work again, they need to be going elsewhere, but a lot of people don't think that way, you know? But they also um, need to maybe be trying to get, this is where I'm going to argue for medication-assisted treatment. They also might need to try a different treatment modality. You know, if you tried abstinence-based, you know, what's, what's it, in a 12-step group, which I know, you know, you're a big a proponent of, you know, what one of our common sayings, and Sandy's repeating the same behavior and accepting different results. If we throw this kid into the same abstinence-based model 10 times and they fail 10 times, insanity would say, let's try that again. So maybe we have to try something different. Maybe this person will respond to medication. You know, maybe this person needs some type of other type of therapy. So that's, that's one thing you know, we always have to look at is, okay, what is the common denominator? What have we tried? And go down the list and then go on the other side of the grid. What haven't we tried? You know, maybe we need to try these things. Maybe this person isn't done yet using and they need to find that quote-unquote bottom. So maybe we put them on some medication like Suboxone or Methadone, properly Suboxone these days, that will bind to the receptors so heroin can't get there so they're not going to die from an overdose so they can go find that pain through another substance and realize I just can't do this anymore. You know, you're bringing up some good things. We're going to take a quick break here, Chad, and I know you've got a bunch going on today, so I'm going to pull you back for the next segment. Then I'm going to let you go do what you have to do. But we're going to take a break. We will be back with Chad Sabora, and we're going to be hitting on medicated, assisted treatment, MAP, whatever you want to call it, methadone, Suboxone, Vivitrol, Bunavale, This is Tim Ryan with the Man in Recovery Radio. We'll be back in a couple minutes with our guest, Chad Sabora. Now there's a new destination for video content, voiceamerica.tv. Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. Voiceamerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. The largest syndicated alternative health talk program has come to the Voice America Network. The Dr. Bob Martin Show is the program that will answer your health questions and help you to heal your own body of many different ailments. Each week, you'll hear the answers that Dr. Bob gives to his callers that help them to be their own doctor most of the time. We'll also discuss developments on the health care front and what you need to do to keep your body in top form. 
The Dr. Bob Martin Show airs Wednesday mornings at 9 a.m. Eastern, 6 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to A Man in Recovery Radio, From Dope to Hope, featuring host Tim Ryan. To reach Tim by mail, please use tryan at amirf.org. That's tryan at amirf.org. Now, back to A Man in Recovery Radio. We're back, Man in Recovery Radio. Your host, Tim Ryan, taking people from dope to hope, helping one addict at a time with my guest and my dear friend, Chad Sabora. Uh, Chad, I want to talk about maintenance. Um, you know, did, were you ever on Suboxone and Methadone? Did you try those routes, trying to get sober? Uh, yes, I Suboxone for detox, um, a little bit for maintenance. But, I mean, one of the reasons I stopped taking Suboxone and many others do is because I was just preparing to get high. Yeah. Um, and I never, I never got on Methadone long term. Uh, but I had had all of those substances at one point in my life. Right. So that's where, you know, I can remember in 2002, I called my dealer who was a big wig with a street gang in Chicago. And when your drug dealer is telling you, Tim, you're buying too much heroin, you're going to die. There's probably an issue. So he sent me to a methadone clinic in Chicago. And that was about a year and a half into my heroin use. I came clean with my wife. She started putting two and two together. I got up to about 100 milligrams and I was evil. Uh I was angry, and, and I, I remember the doctor told me, oh, you won't have any effects. Well, I tried to stop cold turkey, and I about died, so I had to go back to heroin. Then in 2002, I got, uh, there was a doctor in the Wrigley building I'd go see, and this guy would charge me $500 a week cash for seven pills. And I know things have changed drastically since then. Drastically. But basically, I used Suboxone when I didn't have heroin because it was basically, I started going to another doctor, come in. How you doing? Great, quick, physical. Give me my 200 bucks or my 150 and I'll see you next month. There was no therapy. There was no treatment. So, you know, I'm the guy that, and I see where you're coming from, Chad, for the people that might need to be on it. But what I would like to see happen is if these damn treatment centers or there's a place sprouting up all over Chicagoland that that puts their postings up. We have a four-time better success rate. No, you don't. How can people be successfully clean when they're on a, a fucking opiate? That that doesn't make sense to me. But well, here's here's what here's where I come in with just one example is that I never, you know, once you once I, once you're opiate tolerant and you you, you switch over to buprenorphine, suboxone, you really don't get high. Um, it takes care of the cravings. I really never felt any euphoria. But I felt a ton of euphoria off a lot of the antidepressants I was on. So I was I clean on the antidepressants, even though I felt euphoria. Am I not clean on the buprenorphine because I felt nothing? So it's a, you know, it's a philosophical question, but it's not. It's it's a personal journey there. I don't think we should judge somebody else saying they're not clean. They're clean, you know. I mean, I mean, you know, Red Bull. I I, I understand that, but but he, here's what I see happening because I pick. I can't tell you how many people in the past two years. I've had to put into long-term detox. I'm talking three to four weeks to get off of 100, 200 milligrams of methadone, oh, no, no, and of course. But then the Suboxone, I, 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 I wish these places would be truly doing more drug testing, making sure that people are not abusing alcohol, uh, benzos, cocaine, hallucinogenics, because 
a lot of people say, okay, well, I'm clean from opiates, but they're still abusing other things. That, that to me, no, is I, I it's just not a, it's not a win-win situation. But here's, here's our choices. A, we, we, we complain about it, but we fix it. Create a better yeah. MAT model. Create a better clinic. Um, really find the good clinics because there's going to be people that come into your office for help that they're going to be MAT appropriate. So make sure you're sending them to the right resources. You know, just like just like you have those treatment centers that you and I both know of, abstinence-based, that are nothing but revolving doors to make money. There's going to be bad people at every side, the suboxone side, the abstinence side, the methadone yep. side. It's our job to navigate through that force of crap and find the proper services um, for these kids. And we can't let our personal experiences, you know, bind us to, you know, other things. So, so tell me about, yes. do you believe in Vivitrol? I, I'm evidence, I have to be evidence-based. We don't have a single Vivitrol study yet. Um, have I seen it be successful? Yes. Have I seen it fail? Yes. Have I seen people die in Vivitrol? Yes. So um, there's one Vivitrol study out of Russia with an amazing success rate. I think 81% retention rate at a year, which is great. However, in Russia, methadone and Suboxone are both illegal, so you had no baseline to compare it to. There's two studies currently going on in the U.S. right now about Vivitrol. Uh, they should be done hopefully in the next year. And if I had to take a guess, I would say it's going to fall into the same range as Suboxone, which is 60 to 70% retention rate at a year. So it's a great option for some people that, because, you know, me, for example, I, if I had been offered Suboxone in my last rehab, I would have turned it down. I was just so sick of it. I was so sick of the life. But Vivitrol, I might have said, yeah, you know what, I'll think, I'll, I'm, I'll do that. So it's just another good option for people. We can never have too many options, but we have to make sure every single option, from methadone to abstinence based and everything in between, is being run properly. It's our job, guys I, like me and you, is to hold these places accountable to how they treat our brothers and sisters. I agree. I would agree with you. You know, and so like in, in, in Banyan, who I work for, we offer Vivitrol. And it's interesting because a lot of treatment centers I see that offer Vivitrol don't offer it while they're in treatment. They offer it when they're leaving. And our philosophy is if we can get them in and they're willing to do it, do it out of the gate because why they're in PHP and going into IOP, they're not focusing on, on getting high. They're not having those obsessions and compulsions. So for once in their life, they've got clarity and they can actually start peeling back the onion and working on whatever underlying issue is driving them to want to keep going back and going back and going back. Yeah, but I mean, I you know, Chad, it depends on insurance. You want to stretch it as long as possible. But Vivitrol does have its negative parts too. It's an opiate blocker, and it, and, and, and so it doesn't know the difference between opiates I put in my body, like heroin, or opiates my body actually produces. So you could have some underlying depression uh, come in when you're taking Vivitrol. <clears throat> so we have to relook at the individual and do what's best for them. I, I agree, and that's why you have a, a psychiatrist and, and advanced nurse practitioners, and uh, most of the people have some type of depression. Otherwise, you wouldn't be banging a needle in your arm. And I'm one of the know, guys that, like you know, I'm, I'm ADD, like I'm dyslexic, I'm all that. I should have been medicated to the hilt, but just for me, Chad, a little over four years sober, I won't take any mind-altering substance. I'm not willing to take the risk because I know you get – I can remember when I was in prison, I hurt my back. Uh, three days later, I went to the infirmary. They gave me a bubble pack of 
800 milligram ibuprofens. And the first thing I did was push, push them all out into a bottle. And my first thought was, I'm just going to eat all of them because that's my addictive thinking. And I think I ended up taking two and I never used anymore. But for me, I, I just won't do it. But a lot of people have underlying mental health issues and things going oh, yeah. on, you know. Oh, especially these kids, you know. We're, we're, most people are, are so, a lot of, not most, I hate words like that. A lot of them are self-medicating for undiagnosed or misdiagnosed mental issues. A lot of ADHD is misdiagnosed when it's really PTSD and trauma-based. <clears throat> so there's lots of things to it, but we're just scratching the surface. You know, you got, um, got who's, what's Carl's? Carl Hart, right? I mean, he's doing some amazing research out of Columbia. You've got a lot of great, amazing new research coming out on the brain and addiction, and we can really start moving forward and understanding things better, but everyone needs to keep an open mind when examining all this evidence. I, I, so, so let's flip it then to, to recovery. You know me, I'm a 12-stepper to the core, but even at my support groups, when I have the families coming with the addicts and we split it, I tell people, I don't care what you do to get sober, whether it's a 12-step-based program, it's a christian base, it's refuge recovery, it's smart recovery. You do what works for you, but you better change every aspect of your life. And you, you and I had a conversation a few weeks ago, and, and that's why I, I look to you kind of as a mentor, a friend, because you make me look at things that, that I don't see. And you said, Tim... How many years did you struggle for? Shit, 28, 30 years. Okay, so you're expecting a kid at 19 or 20 or 21 to get it first time out of the gate. It's not going to happen. Um, sometimes it does. But for me, I was a guy that never got a sponsor, never worked the steps. I thought I could get sober by hanging out in the, in the recovery meetings through fucking osmosis. It doesn't work that way. No, it doesn't. That's why, you know, there's other options for these kids. Like these 18-year-old kids, have I seen some achieve long-term sobriety? Yes. But how many, you know, how many times do you see it? You know, white key tag after white key tag after white key tag. You know, I want to keep this person alive. I mean, I right. research. We look at numbers. <clears throat> Most people get clean by aging out. You know, they get to about 33, 34, and they just, and they're able to put the stuff down and walk away. <clears throat> I mean, that's just the truth. You know, I mean, there's 20 million people in recovery. Our, our path <clears throat> represents about 5 million of it. So we've got to do everything we can to ensure that person, A, doesn't get any felonies. That's kind of where we have a law clinic at our place. Doesn't die. Doesn't get hep C. Doesn't get HIV. Doesn't lose an arm to an abscess. I mean, it's very, it's difficult, and it's almost refreshing sometimes when I'm at the office and a family walks in and they say their, their, their loved one is struggling with alcohol. I almost... Breathe a sigh of relief. <laughs> exactly. Like, I, I mean, you've got just an alcoholic. <laughs> That's awesome. You I, know, Chad, give us, how can people follow you, contact you if they're in the St. Louis area? Tell us everything you do and, and what resources you're offering. Well, we're building satellite offices, what we do. Like I said, we're trying to fill the, fill, you know, <laughs> fill those holes. So reduce the legal services. Uh, helping you navigate through the criminal justice system through diversion programs like drug court, pro first offenders probation, things so you don't have a record, uh, harm reduction, needle exchange programs, um, Narcan distribution. We have um, the main offices in St. Louis, but we have one down in West Palm Beach now, um, near Marble, New Jersey. Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, our Facebook page is Missouri Network for Opiate Reform and Recovery. 
Uh, most people will go on there or just, you know, find us, me on Facebook, which is Chad Sabora. We have to change the script on how we deal with addiction. You know, this is not a criminal issue. Um, this is a public health issue. Um, and until we completely move this into the public health side, uh, we're, we're going to be, we're going to, we're, we're fighting the losing battle right now. So, uh, so it's unfortunate, but it's, it's a lot of work ahead of us. So, so you know the, the policy side much more than I do. Tell me about this new law, the, the 21st Century Bullshit Act that the president just signed. Oh, my God. The thing is a disaster. It's 996 pages long. Um, I've read it. I've broken it down. Um, almost to the point where my wife wanted to strangle me for being at the computer for so long. This gives a lot of financial baskets and these new accounts to FDN Big Pharma that are perpetual. There's constantly going to be money flowing into them. Uh, it creates small funds for addiction treatment. Um, now, people hear the word $1 billion, and they freak out like that's a lot of money. That $1 billion designated for treatment maxes out at two years, with no guarantee it's ever going to be refilled. And trust me, it's not going to be refilled. We couldn't even get money into the CARE Act. Okay, That's $500 million a year divided by 50 states, divided by the fact that there's roughly 20 million people in this country struggling from alcoholism or substance use disorder. If you break down those numbers, it's nothing, you know, at all. And Max is out of two years. We're just in the midst of this epidemic. We have synthetics coming now. We have all these other things coming. We need long-term funding. What that did was that threw a little financial bone to advocates saying, oh, yeah, we won. But it just um, opened the doors to Big Pharma and FDA to speed up approval processes, um, to keep um, non-generics on this off the shelf so people can't afford their medication. I mean, it's a complete disaster. And they threw us a little bit of money. Um, so it's a, it's a complete, like I said, it's a complete mess, uh, the things that are in there. So well, what do we do here? And the I sad know. fact is I, I see what, what I quit doing is is debating and arguing with people in these stupid Facebook groups because, unfortunately, there's there's a lot of bleeding hearts out there. And, and I feel bad for people. They've lost a loved one, whatever, but they don't take the time to educate themselves on what really is happening. And they start talking out of the side of their mouths and people jump all over it. And this is great. No, it's not great. You know, thank, thank that company, Purdue Pharma, uh, for being a big catalyst and kicking off this whole opiate epidemic in 1996 when they came out with OxyContin and, and the things well, that are I mean, going. That's, and that's, that's They play us against each other. These things, happen, these, these things are not a mistake. The more we fight amongst each other, the more people fight about, you know, Suboxone versus Abstinence or Cures Act versus Care Act. I mean, we just fight amongst ourselves, and they're just walking right over us. Uh, so we need more cohesion. Um, you know, we have a lot of Facebook all-stars who have a lot of big followings that seem to like to just, you know, talk about themselves and what they've accomplished when we, we need those people to start directing an organization. We need to start funneling true education to these parents groups to educate them to get better bills sponsored. You know, this is probably going to have to happen on a state level. Uh, I hate to be a cynic, but um, big pharma spends more money lobbying our representatives and senators in D.C. than the NRA spends for gun rights. They have 17 lobbyists per senator and per representative. It's a billion-dollar industry. We are not going to break that. It's impossible. Um, no, no, so the focus we're, we're has not. To the state. 
and it's getting the right, you know, I can remember I was sitting down with one of the congressmen, you know, I was brought out to the, the State of the Union address last year, and it was cool and all, but, you know, I didn't get to say anything, and it was a, a dog and pony show, and I thought the coolest thing was walking under the tunnels with Congressman Foster and, and be able to, to shoot the shit with him for a few hours than, than really what was going on. But like on a local level, uh, there's a lady, Linda Chapalavia, who's the state rep. She's running for mayor in Aurora, Illinois, which is the second or third largest town in the state. They just had a, a bus there a month ago with 75 pounds of heroin, 155 pounds, of, 150 pounds of cocaine. But she put well, on you, one you, of our cops. Real quick, sir, but you add up every single bus all year that only represents about one percent of the drugs in this country so absolutely another thing that distracts us oh they're doing so good they got all that you know it's um <laughs> el padrino was was was, was famous uh for um he, he started it he would give up a hundred million dollar load to get a billion dollar load through you know What's, what we're seeing is not the truth, and people get too excited about scraps off the table, like a little bit of money uh, in the Cures Act, or this big bust, or that, but they don't see the big picture. I, I agree, and, and what Linda did, she brought us into a high school and had us do our Cop Kid and the Convict presentation, to where, you know, I shared, Brandon Novak shared, but we, we offer parents, and this is for parents with, say, a 12 to 18-year-old, that's at home, the, the cell phone monitoring software, computer, how to drug test, why you should drug test. But then the thing is, at the end of the event, if you have an issue, Man and Recovery Foundation is here to help. And sometimes a parent just needs someone to talk to. And she got yeah. a, a huge a, a huge outpouring from the community. They want to do another one. But I look at a lot of these people that go in and speak. They tell a great story and they leave. They're not offering any solutions to the community. You know, you and your partner, Mr. Riley, are now he he has a a, a degree, right, in addiction counseling or substance abuse. Yeah, yeah, he has a RACEC too, and besides my law degree, I also have degrees in psychology. So we're pretty well versed in um, you know um, you know addiction studies. But real so, quick so, on the on the school programs, I just want I want to. I want to caution the parents when your 16, 17, 8 year old might, might be experimenting, might be testing positive with somebody, really get a good diagnosis, really figure out what's going on. Because I learned how to cook meth in rehab. Um, you, you put a kid that's drug dependent or maybe just experimenting into an environment filled with people that are way past them, um, they're going to be meeting people and learning things they don't need to know. So just always keep that in the front of your I, mind. I, I agree. Um, I'll get a lot of parents that'll say, well, my son's smoking weed. He needs treatment. It's like, yeah, you know, let's let's take this back. You know, maybe he just needs to see someone. What's really going on? I have the same issue with my 17-year-old son. And, you know, then he started dabbling in Xanax and boom, then he gets a damn DUI, you know, a month ago. And now we're dealing with that. And his lawyer sat him down and said, you know, until you quit smoking weed, I'm not taking your dad's money and I'm not representing you because you don't want to stop smoking weed. You want to play video games, smoke weed, hang out with your girlfriend, and that's cool, but I'm not going to represent you. But a normal 18-year-old kid? Not, not the DUI, but the other behavior. It's like we can't automatically assume worst-case scenario because 90% of people that experiment with drugs don't develop a problem. You and me and the other people, I mean, we're, we're, we're the minority, we're the 10% that really 
have this disease that really can last. Uh, but we, we force these kids into, into uh, a treatment setting or into a recovery setting where we're almost guaranteeing that they might become an addict. So you have just a very fine line everybody has to walk. I, I agree. Maybe one time I put somebody under 17 into an inpatient treatment setting because they were shooting heroin. The other ones, one-on-one counseling with a therapist. And yep. Because most of those kids aren't addicts. And they just, I, they're just missing They're experimenting. I, I agree. Else. Chad, we need to go to break. Are you going to be able to hang for the next get, you know, 18 minutes of this um, show, or you got to go? I got to go. Chad Sabora, if to... you need to, you're in the St. Louis area. You want to follow this guy. Please follow him on Facebook. Chad is a, a trendsetter in what's going on. Uh, we'd like to thank Chad for joining us. This will be Tim Ryan, Man of Recovery Radio. We'll be back in about uh, two or three minutes. We'll be taking some phone calls. Chad, have a blessed day. We'll talk to you soon, my Jedi Knight. You too, but I'm going to stay online for the break. Hold on. As we age, our health can decline. For some, it's a slow, even process, while for others, it can happen at a much faster rate. The health decline can start in people as young as their 30s. Did you know a lot of age-related diseases can be prevented, reversed, or eliminated? It's true. You'll find out more every week on Healthy Aging with Dr. Denise Bogard. Tune in every Wednesday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health & Wellness Channel. It's your life. Keep it going well. What sets apart VoiceAmerica.tv from the other video content providers on the Internet? Choice and flexibility means that you can host your video content live or on demand on the main VoiceAmerica.tv channels through your own branded media player or your own private TV channel. We support multiple media formats, so all of your video content can be in one place. We offer a number of advertising and video packages. For more information, visit VoiceAmerica.tv. If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. You are listening to A Man in Recovery Radio, from dope to hope, featuring host Tim Ryan. To reach Tim by mail, please use tryan at amirf.org. That's tryan at amirf.org. Now, back to A Man in Recovery Radio. Hey, this is Tim Ryan with Man in Recovery Radio, taking people from dope to hope, helping one addict at a time. I'd like to thank uh, my dear friend Chad Sabora for coming on. He's moving today, got all sorts of things. He's still probably jacked up from uh, the new Star Wars movie, so Chad had to run. If you do want to call in, please pick up the phone and call 866-472-5791. We'd love to take some calls. Um, A couple things I just wanted to follow up with, you know, for me, the suboxone and methadone didn't work. For some people, it absolutely does. Um, I'm all for Vivitrol here at Banyan Treatment Center. We offer Vivitrol. I don't know what the answer is for someone to stay clean and sober. They've had to have enough pain. They got to want to change. And it's not easy. You know, I, I look at my 20-year-old son, Nicholas. You know, he'd been to treatment six times. Nick loved treatment, but Nick didn't want to put forth the effort to apply recovery and give it a shot. And I always say, don't leave before the miracle happened. And, 
You know, he died a few, uh, 45 days out of treatment. I don't blame the treatment centers he went to. He loved them. They were good places. Um, so it's, it, it, it's crazy. We're going to add on a friend of mine, uh, Carly. Carly, are you tied in? Are you yeah, there, Carly? Yeah, how are you guys? Hi, Carly. It's, uh, this is my friend. I call her Carly the intern. Carly, what's going on with you? Not much. I'm actually just working on putting out a newsletter for Man in Recovery. And I do have a question for you guys. Yep. Well, Chad so, had to go, so you got me, Carly. All right. So what I was your- wondering what you think about the kind of more push to legalize marijuana in the U.S. and how so, that's going to affect those in recovery. If you really look at Colorado, and and I was just watching something, I guess, in Massachusetts. They just legalized it. You can have up to 10 ounces at home. And, you know, Chad and I will both tell you flat out that 90% of the people that smoke weed will not become a drug addict. But I'll, I'll use the analogy of a guy when Oregon started with medical marijuana, it's about four years ago. This guy was 25 years clean and sober from heroin. And he had hurt his back, so the doctor prescribed medical marijuana. Within three weeks, he was dead from a heroin overdose. For me, if you ask any heroin addict where they started, they all started smoking pot. But that doesn't mean everyone that smokes pot is going to become a heroin addict. But I'll, I'll flip it back to you, Carly. How old are you again? I'm 21. So you're 21. So even now, have you ever smoked pot, Carly? Yes, I have. Okay, so let's take back to high school. You're in high school. You're 16 years old. You're with a couple girls. You're at a party. You smoke some of this killer weed. You have a couple drinks, and your inhibitions are dropped, and someone walks up and says, here, try this pill, or here, snort this. You wouldn't have done it if you weren't under the influence of marijuana. But since you were, your your inhibitions are dropped, that's the gateway that's opening Pandora's box. And Carly, today, whether you're in high school or college, you are the minority if you don't drink or do any type of drug. Would you agree? I mean, absolutely. I mean, even on my college campus, it's incredible how prolific, you know, the alcohol problem is. And, you know, people are like, oh, it's a small town. You know, there's not much to do, so kids just drink. But I think there has been, I don't know much information on it, but there is kind of a recent push to have more sober activities, which I think is huge because, you know, they they always tell us, they're like, there's a higher population of kids that don't drink and do drugs at Miami University than there is um, people that do drink and do drugs. But it's, you know, those are the kids that you hear walking around at night and going out and stuff, so... I think if you have a sober community that's more visible, I think more people are going to be able to partake in that and not feel like they're missing out because they choose not to use. Well, well, well there's a lot more sober colleges or sober dorms popping up. I mean, there was always a big misconception when I grew up that if your kid went to a Catholic school, they'd do well. All the kids at the Catholic schools, those were all the girls to hook up with if you wanted to get laid. Those were all oh, the yeah. kids that knew... 
that knew where all the drugs were. I mean, there, there's such a misconception out there today. Um, and and what's, what's bothering me, Carly, is the kids are getting younger and younger, not just smoking weed, but getting into benzos, getting into pain pills, and getting into heroin. And, and they're dying at 18, 19, 15, 16 years old. It, it, it's heart-wrenching, I mean. What made you say, you know, that's not the path I want to take? And, and what are you doing with your life now? What are you looking to get a degree in, Carly? Yeah, so I want to be an addiction treatment professional, absolutely. This summer I got to intern with a man recovering at Banning Treatment Center, and I just absolutely fell in love with what you guys do, and I just knew. there was. I got to lead a group one day, and after the group, I was just like, I can't see myself doing anything else. And it's so I'm also getting a journalism degree, and it's so funny. In high school, um, we had a mock press conference where our teacher came in, and, you know, I was kind of involved in a little bit of the dark underbelly of Naperville when I was younger, and I immediately started asking our principal, about our heroin problem at our school. And so I just was kind of put on the heroin beat, and now it's crazy that I'm actually going to be, you know, I kind of merged those two interests and loves um, after school. So, yeah, it's pretty much kind of why I want to do this. But um, I'm sorry, what was your other question? Hell, I don't know. I don't remember. You got talking and I forgot. But, you know, I can, I can remember when Suzette, who's our executive clinical director, said, you need to read this email from this girl, Carly. And you had sent her this email about wanting to intern for us because, you know, we just started Banyan Chicago a little over a year ago and really don't oh, yeah. have the time to bring in interns. But when I read your email, I'm like, get that girl in here and let's give her a shot. And... You have the tenacity. You, you were willing to do whatever it takes, and you still do. You, you helped with Man Recovery Now. You do our newsletters. It's really interesting. I was at the cigar shop the other day and ran into uh, Tony, who's friends with your mom oh, and dad. Yeah. So he goes, Tim, uh, he had bumped into your mom earlier in the day, and he goes, yeah, I can remember when I was talking with Carly's mom and dad, and they're like, yeah, Carly's interning for this this guy that deals with heroin, and he said, oh, really, who's that? Well, it's this guy, Tim Ryan, with Man Recovery and Banning and Treatment. Tony's like, oh, Tim's a good friend of mine. So, you know, it, it, it's interesting where things go, but I couldn't imagine me doing anything else, Carly. I mean, this was my oh, calling yeah. and, and is my calling, but it's not an easy line of work. There's a lot of um, people that don't make it. There's a lot of people that die, but it's people that are getting into it for the right reasons. What is your one main reason that said, this is what I want to do? Well, yeah, so going off of, you know, the people that don't make it. So I remember I was in, it was my freshman year of college, and I was laying in my dorm bed, and I was scrolling through Instagram, and I saw this RIP post, and it was a picture of a girl who was on my gymnastics team. And I was like, oh, no. No, you've got to be kidding me. Who and was that? we did bars together. Um, Sam Murek. Okay. Um, so she was a senior in high school, and I was a freshman in college. And so, you know, we kind of got the team together. I later found out it was, it was a heroin overdose. And um, we went to her wake, and I have never been so 
angry at just the world. Like, I just remember, you know, my parents were worried at me. I came home, I had her card, and I threw it down, and I was like, I, this should not be happening. This is a child. You know, she didn't even get to graduate college. I'm like, who gave her this crap? You know, like, what is going on? I just remember being so mad, and I was like, you know what? I, I can do something about this. I just remember making this pact to myself. You know, I was like, I'm going to study my ass off. I'm going to get this degree, and I'm going to make a difference because this was such a, just a beautiful young girl that just had her life taken away from her by this stupid drug. And, you know, she was the first of many, I mean, in my life. Not that kind of thing. Thankfully, no one I've been, you know, very, very close to, but still, you know, and I think, you know, I tell people all the time, if I hadn't gotten out of my group of friends that I did, that I was friends with kind of in the beginning of high school. You could easily you know, went down that road. happened to me. Yep, yep, well, and, and it's a choice, and a lot of people today, Carly, are followers, they're not leaders, and that's okay, mm-hmm. but... It's so easy in, in the pressures of school and technology and keeping up with the Joneses and everything else. And I'm so stressed and I don't have the coping skills because no one taught them to me and no one taught my parents how to be parents. And I feel unloved and I'm hated. And bam, right. it, the easy answer is, well, I'm going to go medicate myself. And, and we right. can see where the, where it takes people. I mean, just down a road to utter hell and destruction. I mean, it's, uh, it's heart-wrenching. It's absolutely heart-wrenching. But, you know, we got some good things here. And I do want to say, you know, if people are listening and they need help, they can check out A Man in Recovery Foundation at www.amirf.org. I also am the Chief Marketing Officer for Banyan Treatment Center. We have a facility in Pompano Beach, Florida. Naperville, Illinois, Boston, Massachusetts, the state of the de- state-of-the-art detox in Stewart, Florida. You can check us out on the web at www.banyantreatmentcenter.com. Carly, what did you think of my TEDx talk? I was just watching it. It was so funny. Um, I was just watching it before I called, and I absolutely love it. Because Not too it's bad, so huh? True. I mean... I've I've heard people say that what exactly we're talking about. Oh, not not in Naperville, you know, not in my house, not in my community, but it is, you know, it's everywhere. It's, not, I mean, it, it's these little girls. I mean, I'm calling them little girls. They're you know over eighteen, but to me, you know, they just have so much of their lives ahead of them, and somehow, and it's you know, I don't. You would know this better than me, but I've you know I heard it's there's heroin in pill form, I'm assuming, you know, the painkillers, so there's lots of the stigma of, you know, shooting oh, there's, up. There, there's a and, lot of fentanyl in it, too. Exactly. And so, you know, kids are like, oh, I'm just taking it in the pill. It's not that big of a deal. There's, you know, I don't have a needle in my arm. And, you know, all of a sudden you're in full-blown heroin addiction. So I just think it's so important to just talk about this and let people know that there are resources available, one, and two, that there is hope in recovery, you know? Absolutely. There is hope out there. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta seek and there's different avenues, but if you want to check out that Ted talk, you can go to YouTube and type in Tim Ryan, TEDx Naperville 2016. It's on there. We're getting ready to close our show here. If you want to follow me 
A Man in Recovery on Twitter. I've got a number of Facebook groups, Tim Ryan Motivational Speaker, A Man in Recovery Foundation, or you can just follow me, Tim Ryan, Naperville, Illinois. I think on Instagram, it's from dope to hope. Um, This has been A Man in Recovery Radio. This is my guest, Carly, our intern. We love you, Carly. (laughs) I'll talk to you in a little bit. I'd like to thank our guest, Chad Sabora, uh, for coming on. You know, remember, there is hope out there. You just got to put up your hand and reach out. This is Tim Ryan with A Man in Recovery Radio. Have a great week. We'll talk to you soon. Have a blessed day. This has been A Man in Recovery Radio from dope to hope. Please join Tim Ryan again next Monday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 9 a.m. Central Time, and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel for another edition of our program. And remember, there is always a future, always hope. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.